Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. We're your hosts, Laurel Gurrier and Danielle Jackson. Hello, Celia. Hello, Whitley. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. To tell our listeners who is showing up in this space today, <laughs> Celia will be sharing her birth story, but also has her doula with her, Whitley. And y'all know how we feel about uh, doulas and partners showing up and sharing as well. So we are super excited. But why don't we start with each of you just telling us a little bit about yourselves and your family? Yeah, um, my name is Celia Kelly Buza. I was born and raised in Bakersfield, California, um, and about 12 years ago, I moved to Central Connecticut for what at the time was my dream job to be a production assistant at ESPN. Um, I met my husband, Terrell, there, um, and we got married about six years ago. Um, we both still work at ESPN. I lead our early career production talent um, in the same program that hired both Terrell and I when we started our careers. And Terrell now leads the NBA pregame show um, called NBA Countdown. We have two beautiful children. My son, who is three and a half, his name is Axel, and my almost five-month-old daughter, Maxwell. Um, And we're joined today by my, my doula, Whitley. Hello, everybody. My name is Whitley. I was Celia's doula. And so my name is Whitley Mingo. I'm from Hartford, Connecticut, and I am the owner of Nubian Doula Services. And what I do is I support families specifically, well, especially families of color. I'm very passionate about ensuring that they are able to achieve the birth vision of their dreams. Yeah. And so I've been a doula now for about four years, but my background is also social work. So I've worked with maternal and child health for about nine years as a social worker um, in the community, going into homes, working with low income families to ensure that they have the services that they need when they discharge from the hospital up until their child reaches age five. All right, Celia, tell us about your pregnancy. Yeah, I'm going to start with my son, Axel, um, because his birth really informed um, my daughter's birth, Maxwell. So with Axel's pregnancy, um, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was trying to get pregnant with with Axel. And um, it took us a really long time to try to get pregnant. I actually had a miscarriage um, a year before um, I got pregnant with Axel. So I was monitored. I was on medication, um, not like as uh, intense as like IVF, but um, my OB was able to help uh, with other medication and a lot of monitoring um, to get us pregnant. So I felt pregnant with Axel and I was very sick. I was, uh, had extreme nausea and vomiting and um, throwing up basically every single day for the entire 40 weeks and five days of, of my pregnancy. Um, but it was more of an interruption. It wasn't debilitating. It wasn't something that, um, I wasn't able to continue through my day with. I was still going to work. I would go to a meeting. I would run to the bathroom. I would throw up, I would brush my teeth and I would go back to my next meeting. Um, and I still felt pretty good overall, other than the, the all day nausea and, and vomiting. Um, and the rest was textbook. There was no challenges for him or for me, um, the entire time. 
I went into the spontaneous labor at 40 weeks and five days. Um, we had just moved into a new home and I was in my house just laboring for as long as possible. Um, we went to the hospital and when I got there, I was about five centimeters dilated. Um, before Axel was born, we took one childbirth class at the hospital and the nurses were like, we're great, we're gonna be there, we're gonna support you through your labor, we're gonna check on you, we're gonna do all these things to make sure that you get the birth that you want. And a lie was told that day because I got to the hospital and I got checked in and they were like, we'll see you later and figure it out kind of on your own and manage your pain on your own. So um, pretty quickly after I got there without the support that I think I thought I was gonna have, um, I requested an epidural. So I got an epidural and everything was great after that. I laid down, I was taking a nap. My best friend came in town from New York. We were just laughing and talking. I'm FaceTiming my family. And then maybe like three or four hours later, um, a nurse rushed in and his heart rate had dropped. And I wasn't really progressing much. I think I was only at six centimeters at this point. Um, when she came in and said that his heart rate dropped, they just repositioned me and moved me into another position and his heart rate came back up. So she left, she came back 20 minutes later, maybe even less than that, and his heart rate had dipped again. So they tried to reposition me again, didn't really work. Um, so they had me on my hands and knees holding onto the back of the hospital bed. That's the only position that his heart rate would start to come back up. At this point, everything is moving very fast. All of a sudden now I'm like signing paperwork to get an emergency C-section. They're telling me they need to get him out. So we go back to the room. They were so fast to try to get him out. They forgot my husband was in the room and he had to come in as I'm, my abdomen's basically already open on the table. He comes around, he's holding, you know, he's, he's standing there with me. Axel is born very fast. My pediatrician before Axel was born said, you know, not all babies cry immediately when they come out. So don't worry if you don't hear him cry the second that he comes out. So they take him out. I don't hear him cry right, right away. But then when he does cry, he sounds like he's underwater, like he's gurgling. And so um, they take him, they put, they pull him up over the drape so that I can see him. And then they whisk him away and he's gone. And my husband leaves and goes with Axel. Um, Axel had aspirated meconium and he couldn't breathe. So it's 9 p.m. at this point when he was born, 9.18 when he was born. And um, I didn't get a chance to even hold Axel until 1 a.m. that day because they were working on him and working on him and trying to figure out what was going on. So one o'clock, I'm drowsy. I'm holding him for the first time and I needed to get some rest. So he went back to the nursery. Um, and at 4 a.m., the doctor comes in and they're like, we can't provide everything that we need for him. He's not doing well. We have to transfer him to another hospital, um, to the children's hospital. So they put him in the little box. The people are already there from, for the ambulance to take him off. Um, I got to go in and you know say, I'll see you later to him. And they take him and they leave. My husband goes with him. Somehow my husband beat the ambulance to the hospital. He's like, I'm here. They're not even here yet. What's going on? 
Um, and Axel was immediately admitted to the NICU. Um, they told us like the next 24 hours are like super crucial. So um, my doctor comes finally a few hours later and she's like, yeah, we don't know if we can transfer you or not to the hospital. And I was like, oh no, y'all will figure it out because I need to be at the same hospital as my baby. And I think it was probably 12 hours by the time I was actually transferred to the hospital that um, Axel was at um, downtown in Hartford. So we get there, he's got a bunch of tubes and wires and all kinds of stuff um, going on. And um, he's progressively getting a little bit better. I'm in another room on another floor because they didn't have any room in the in labor and delivery for me. Um, and I'm pumping, pumping, pumping. My best friend is staying in the hospital with me and she's like taking swabs of uh, colostrum down and the nurses are like putting it in his mouth. Um, and he was there for a total of four days. And on the third day was the first time I was able to like hold him next to my body with no gown on to do skin to skin and like finally get him to try to latch. Um, I was super fortunate that our breastfeeding journey was not impacted by those three days of not being able to nurse. Um, and we still nursed for 18 months and it was, it was great. Um, but it was really hard and I didn't realize I had a lot of resentment and trauma from the emergency C-section, the lack of bonding. Everybody reads about the golden hour and all these things that you're supposed to have after your baby is born. And we didn't, we didn't get that. I didn't get that with Axel. So, um, yeah, he is now a very healthy, very happy, very opinionated three-year-old. So all well that ends well. But it was it was rough getting him here and getting him to a space where, um, you know, we all felt comfortable. Those first four days were, were really, really hard and really challenging. Um, so I'm going to switch and go into Maxwell a little bit because, you know, after telling that it it really changed the way that I thought about approaching pregnancy and birth. So because I had PCOS, um, I didn't think that I was going to be able to get pregnant spontaneously um, because we had so much trouble and had a miscarriage before. Um, so I was good with Axel. My husband and I, we were like, we're not, we're not willing to go through the monitoring and the medication and all that again. Like we got our baby and we're, we're good to go. So I got spontaneously pregnant uh, when Axel was two years old because it always happens that way. And um, I found out super early. I was probably like four or five weeks when I found out and I immediately got really sick again, the same way that I did with Axel, but this time it was worse. It was extremely challenging. I was, um, I had extreme nausea and vomiting from about week, like week six and a half, week seven, and couldn't keep any food or any liquid down for over 24 hours. Um, I, ha I was still seeing the same OB that I had from Axel's birth. And I called and saw her and I just felt like she wasn't listening to me and, and wasn't understanding the level of debilitating pain that I was in with the nausea and vomiting. And I know she remembered that I had that with Axel, but it, it was so much worse than it was before. So I got admitted to the emergency room at um, week seven to just try to get the vomiting under control. And 
I decided to switch care after that because I didn't want to be with a doctor that I felt like wasn't listening or wasn't taking me seriously. Um, so I had, I had, I went to the ER. I had that visit. They got it under control for about 12 hours. I came home and it just started basically all over again. I didn't want to take Zofran because I was afraid that it was going to have a negative impact on my pregnancy, um, but ended up having to take it because there was nothing else that would work for me. Um, finally had a combination. I think I was on three different anti-nausea medications at the height of it and was able to wean off towards the end of my pregnancy. Um, and that's when I decided at that time that, you know, I am going to find some support to be able to get me through this pregnancy and through birth. And that's when I went on a search for a doula and was so fortunate to be able to find Whitley. Um, Willie, I'm going to have you jump in here in a second, but I want to tell about how I found Whitley. Um, I found her on Instagram. I think everybody's finding everybody on Instagram these days. And I just searched like the hashtag CT doula and Whitley's page popped up. And I call, I sent Whitley a DM and she got back to me and um, went to her website. And I said, Hey, you know, I had a traumatic first birth. I want to um, hire a doula. I'm trying to have a V back, you know, you, would you meet with me? And Whitley said, yeah, I'll meet with you, but I haven't had any V back clients. So here's a list of like three or four other doulas that you should reach out to, to talk to. And I was like, what? You're just going to make my job super easy on me to find someone else if you're not going to be the person for me. And I knew in the back of my mind at that time that like she was the perfect person for me if, if that was the case. Um, it was really important for me to, to try to achieve a VBAG. So, um, you know, if she thought that someone else would be better suited, then I was willing to try. I think I made one phone call and I was like, nah, Willie, let's talk. Let's just talk and see, you know, if this will work out or not. And Whitley and I got on the phone and she was like, I have clients right now that are trying for a VBAC. And I think I'm going to have like two or three before your birth, but I just haven't done it yet. And I haven't supported anybody through that yet. And, you know, I just, I knew that I thought that she was going to be a good fit. Whitley, am I missing anything from our our beginning? No, that is exactly what happened. And I was going to reflect on that as well, because <laughs> that was like one of the most crucial points. I, I booked some clients and I had somewhat of a relation with them. So like I've known them from prior experiences in life. And so to work with someone who I don't know, I didn't have the confidence yet. And when Cecilia decided when she decided I would be the one, it gave me the confidence to know that I can do this. And honestly, that propelled me with every other client that I had. And so it was, it was fate. A majority of my uh, career has been fate and a higher power pushing me to expand myself and to always strive a little bit more. And so that was one of those defining points because ever since, her birth, I've had so many VBAT births ever since. And they've all been successful. I think I've had about five or six now. And they have, everyone has delivered vaginally and achieved, even with the biggest babies. And so um, that is essentially how we had met. We had our conversations and I was like, okay, we are going to do this. We are going to plan. And I was honored that 
they trusted in my ability to support them through achieving this um, redemption birth, if you'll have it. Absolutely. Um, just a couple of other things, because Axel's uh, pregnancy was textbook. I, I was diagnosed with placenta previa at um, 18 weeks. And I remember texting Whitley, like, I have full placenta previa. Like, it's it's not going to move, Whitley. It's not going to move. I'm going to end up with another C-section. She's like, it can move. It can move. Don't worry. Um, and six weeks later, it was fully resolved, and I was I was on my way. Um, and then also later in my birth, there started to be trace amounts of protein in my urine, and um, I had two instances of high blood pressure. So um, that kind of led into me being induced, which I'll talk about um, in a minute. But that that was kind of the trajectory of my of my. Uh, pregnancy very hard very very sick but um everything started to resolve towards the end there you hit a lot of stuff and i just <laughs> <laughs> i want to talk about pcos for a second um yeah so pcos is like ptsd mm -hmm. by another name but we only think of it as being like this hormonal issue that causes insulin issues and weight issues, all these different things. And so until we like really tap into what it is, it's going to continue to wreak havoc, especially for women's fertility. Um, a lot of women during pregnancy have high blood pressure issues due to the PCOS. Um, it's not just a, like people think of it as being like kind of like diabetes, but it's not. It's not. Um, so we don't talk more about that. But the other thing I wanted to talk about was the mental work of the VBAC, um, how it's so much more than a physical thing that you think it's physical because that's how the providers and everyone else like presents it. It's like this happened and so you had to have a, a surgical birth, whether it's something that was going on with the baby's positioning, which was causing a heart rate issue, was it the meconium, was all these different things. Um, Laurel and I always ask or at least recommend that people that have ever had a surgical birth go back and look at your records to see what it actually says, not just what they said you told you at the moment that they told you need a surgical birth, because a lot of times it doesn't match. Um, not every time. But, or even that what's written on down is more detailed because that's their, their formal record. And so you get a better understanding of what was going on with your body in that particular moment in time, not what's always going on with your body. Um, I love that Whitley was kind of humble about VBAC. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, I could do that because I could do anything. A lot of doulas are out there like, I got it, I got it. Um, but being humble about it and knowing that there's so much more to why a person had a surgical birth and why and that you're going to step into this space that you want what your client wants and, and you but you can't want it more than your client wants it um and the work is is less about you and more about what your client and the person you're working with and your family is actually willing to put into to actually make the VBAC happen because a lot of it is mental work absolutely for sure. And, and 
I can say we had our prenatal meetings and the childbirth education that I provide specifically to families of color is important to me because I want us to cover information in depth. So when we walk into the hospital, you are not being pre presented with this information for the first time. And we really work together on our visits to dive in deep with some education, but then also she did her own work. When I tell you there is nobody who can research better than, than this mama on this call, <laughs> she knew all of the things she needed to know. She was fully aware. And you said to go back and check the record. This is the woman that you have who will go back and check her record. I had my records. And it's funny because I heard you guys say that on a previous podcast before. And so, especially when I was switching care, and I'll tell you full disclosure, I thought I was just going to have a repeat C-section. Like the second I got pregnant, I called my best friend. And I was like, I'm going to just have a repeat C-section. It's going to be super easy. I'm going to roll in there. I'm going to have that done. And then maybe like two or three days later, I was like, nah, this is not, this is not what I want. I want to try to have, you'll hear Whitley and I say redemption a lot, a redemptive like birth. Like that was really important. Um, and so I was prepared for the doctors to say, oh, your score is not going to be good enough for you to try to have a VBAC. And I was ready to be armed with all the information that was necessary to let them know that that is not true. So I got my records, just like I've heard y'all say on the podcast before, and I combed through every single line and I would show up to ultrasounds and they're like, so what happened with your last birth? And I was like, D cells. And I would use words and they're like, are you in the medical field? And I'm like, no, but I read my stuff. And I'm very researched. So no one can pull anything over on me after that because I was I was ready. <laughs> oh, she said hit him with the lingo, D cells. And <laughs> <laughs> my husband was in there and he's like, I've never heard you say that word before. <laughs> what is that? And I was like, nah, see, we're not about to do this. And it's funny because I had a doctor who said, because um, I didn't want them to pretend like they were fine with me having a VBAC and then change their mind in like week 36 or week 38. And, you know, I was already advanced maternal age. I was 36 at the time that I was going to give birth. So they were already monitoring me. They were using language like, we'll do another growth ultrasound at like week 32. And I had read like, don't let them try to change the plan like later with that. So I always wanted to be armed with the information in every single appointment. I said, I have a doula, she will be here. And I feel like that just let people know that like, nah, I'm not coming in this like blind with no plan, with no support. Like she's going to make the attempt. And I made sure to talk about it because the practice that I'm at, you saw like every single doctor that was there, right? It wasn't just one single person. So there was a lot of repeating myself and a lot of making sure that every doctor I saw and any doctor I was going to see in the future knew what my goals were and that I wasn't going to be deterred from that based on a calculator that's racist to begin with. It was that last part. <clears throat> the last part. <laughs> I think she yeah. did a mic drop right after that. Right. She said it, it was just like... <laughs> that calculator. It's mm -hmm. like it's like going to the store for your jeans. If you are of African descent, those jeans are not designed for you. It's not that you can't wear jeans. 
mm-hmm. but you're going to need to change some things and make some alterations for them to actually fit the right way because we got curves in different places okay fit models are like straight okay mm-hmm. we're not mm-hmm. we're not built like that so that calculator is a bad pair of department stores <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, So, Willie, you talked a little bit about how you were um, going into the meetings. Were there any other things that you were trying to get Celia and her husband to to think about or plan for in preparation for um, their birth, their redemptive birth? Yes. So, to... And to be completely transparent, there wasn't much that I feel like I needed to prepare her on mentally because she was mentally there. It requires a lot of mental work to be able to do this, to honestly be able to know the experience you had and then to envision something completely different takes a lot from the mother. And so I felt like Celia was there. My presence my words were great, but I did want her to know the education on all of the other possibilities that did not take place during her first birth that could come up in this next birth so that we'd be able to be open to whatever the plan is and move accordingly, but still trying working towards our vision. What I've noticed working with VBAC moms is any intervention can be very scary for them because it, it feels like it's going to be a cascade into the wrong direction. So I want to have conversations about what is and what can so that we are able to still stay firm with what our vision is, but be open to the possibilities because things can divert, but we can always still stay with whatever our long-term goal is, right? I don't want moms to get in there and to completely freak out because of the trauma that exists from the previous birth, because that also can happen. It's like, oh, we're going to offer this medication. Oh, nope. I don't even know what that medication is. I'm not having it. And it can now open a door to the unknown. So um, I really worked on just having them being informed on other interventions that are still helpful, possible that can come up, but not necessarily going to divert us from having our VBAC. And that was so key because I thought that I had to have zero interventions in order to get this done. Like I thought that that was the only way. And so I was really panicked at the end when they wanted to induce me because I was like, oh, my chances are over. I'm going to end up on the surgical table if this happens because it's the beginning, right? Of everything else that starts to fall, as Whitley said, to snowball into a surgical birth. So for Whitley, when she was here, and she, it's so funny, Whitley, I don't know if you remember, but Terrell was very much like, yo, I know of all this already. Like, we went through our hospital class, but the second Whitley walked out of the door after her first meeting with us, he was like, I know nothing. I didn't know a single thing. That's how detailed Whitley was with all of the education that he thought that we knew beforehand we didn't talk about any of these different interventions that could happen and what does that mean and how else can we be more informed for making decisions? Because I felt like with Axel's birth, I didn't make any decisions. I was told what was going to do. Maybe they asked and maybe I just don't remember, but it felt like they were telling me, we're going to break your water now, or can we break your water? And I'm just like, sure, because I didn't know any better. And when Whitley left our house after the first meeting, 
both Terrell and I felt like, okay, we're going to be able to make decisions and slow things down in a way that decisions don't always have to be very fast unless there's an emergency. And you can't do that if you don't have the education beforehand. I love how Whitley put what is and what can. Like, I, like that just is, is such a powerful way of thinking about it. Whether you're, when you're having multiples, whether your first birth didn't go the way that, that you expected it to go or it did, each birth is different. Each birth brings its own journey. So being able to sit in that place of that is what happened, that what is this, and then what are the possibilities is so, so helpful. I'm loving all of it, y'all. <laughs> um, <laughs> with that said, tell us about your birth. Yeah. Um, I'm going to back up just a couple of things as I was preparing for Maxwell. Maxwell was born in May. My son was born in March. So it was like the dead of winter still in Connecticut when he was born. So I didn't get out much at all with Axel's birth. But with Maxwell, I was, I was walking, I was curb walking, I was doing everything to get this baby out. Every day my neighbors would see me walking through the neighborhood and um, I had my headphones in, I was listening to birth stories in color every day and just like trying to prepare myself. So I was 39 weeks and five days and maybe a week prior to that, my son is in daycare, he got exposed to COVID. So he's home with us. I'm masked. My husband's masked because we're just like, neither one of us can get COVID right now as we're about to go into this birth because I would have had to birth by myself. They wouldn't allow Whitley in if I had COVID. And, you know, if my husband had COVID, he couldn't come to support me either. So we decided to keep my son home in the days leading up to my due date, just so he wasn't exposed again, just in case. Um, so my son is home. And I put him down for his nap and I go to my 40 week appointment, which was at 39 weeks and five days. And I sit down, I have my blood pressure taken and it's a little high. It's not like crazy high, but it's a little high. And I get back, I see the doctor, they test my urine. There's trace amounts. It's a little high on the, on the protein. And she's like, I'm, I'm going to send you to L and D like, you just need to be monitored you're almost there. Like, let's just be precautious about this. And I was so bummed because I'm like, oh man, this is how it starts. This is the beginning of the end for me because they're going to keep me. And like, it's, I'm already starting behind the eight ball and I'm not going to be able to labor at home and all of these places that Whitley and I have already picked out in my house and all of these things. So I go over to L and D and they, hook me up to a blood pressure monitor. My blood pressure is fine. It's dropped. Everything's good. And when I tell you, I haven't seen a single black doctor the entire time that I've uh, been seeing for the 39 weeks I've been monitored. I've seen a ton of doctors, haven't seen one. And then in walks this black woman in scrubs, who's a doctor, Dr. Branch. And I said, whoa, where did she come from? Because I haven't seen her at all. And she's working on an ultrasound. She's teaching. There's a student with her. This is a teaching hospital. She's a resident. And um, she goes, I said, hi, you know, I'm Celia. She introduces herself. And I said, I get to go home, right? She said, absolutely not. You are not going home. She said, listen, if you were 37 weeks, I would deliver you now. You are 39 weeks and five days. Let's, let's get you induced. And I'm going to de deliver your baby tomorrow. And I said, 
okay, fine. It was something about this black woman doctor who I had never seen before that had all the trust in the world for me to say, okay, cool. If that's the plan, then that's what we're going to do. So I called Whitley and let her know that they were keeping me and we were staying. And so I had to call Terrell. Terrell was working. It was a, it was game one of the Easter conference finals. He was at home. Um, my dad had to come over and take care of Axel. So Terrell like left the hospital, went, my bag is not packed guys. Why is my bag not packed at 39 weeks and five days? Um, Terrell had to pack his bag, get everybody ready. And I'm just at the hospital and they were like, you know what? We're going to take our time. Like, it's cool. Go take a shower, have your husband pick up some takeout, have a good, like last meal. And like, we'll start when we start, we're not going to rush you. And I felt so much more at ease at that point that we are not, I'm not being rushed into this. So Dr. Branch is gone. She's off. You know, she'll be back in the morning and the attending on call comes in to my room and she said, what is your plan for your birth? What are, you, what are your goals? What do you want to achieve? And like nobody had really asked me that before leading up to the, the birth. Like they asked me if I had a plan, but no one asked me to really explain it. And I said, you know, number one, I want to be safe. Number two, I want my baby to be safe. But a real close third is I'm trying to have this VBAC and I'm not trying to push on my back and all of these things. And she's like, cool, we can do that. We do VBACs here. That's what we do. Like, that's not a problem. And she said, and I can catch a baby in any position you need to be. So we're, we're good. And so, again, I started to feel more at ease. So then my husband shows up. We have, like, a great takeout dinner and we get started. I'm half a centimeter dilated at this point. And you know with VBACs, they can't use all of the options for induction. So had to have a Foley bulb put in. Before then, for whatever reason, they make VBAC patients or they strongly suggest VBAC patients have two IVs put in in each arm for some reason. So I had both IVs put in. I warned the, the nurse hey, like I have really small veins, like then my veins roll, like people have problems. And she was like, oh no, it's fine. I got this. Took them three times to try to put place one IV. So I'm getting poked and prodded all over the place. So then the Foley bulb, the resident comes to do the Foley bulb. She tries, she can't get it in. She stops. She tries again. She can't get it in. The uh, attending comes in she tries she also can't get it in so now i've had three attempts with no pain medication whatsoever at a foley bulb attempt she goes look i know that we've tried a lot she was like i'm i'm like right there can can i try again and i said yeah sure you know we can try again it took four times for the foley bulb to be placed so now i'm like starting to cry not because of the pain, but more because I'm just like, here we go. Like, this is going to be hard. Everything about this is going to be harder than it needs to be. Um, the Foley bulb finally gets in. Uh, we're, we're resting. Whitley comes at around midnight. She brings aromatherapy. She brings flameless candles. She's got a playlist ready for us. And she's like, y'all need to take a nap and then I'll be back. And that was the first time I finally 
got some rest and I could feel my body be less tense and less like stressed. Um, so we labored, uh, I, I believe they would have started the Pitocin at this time too. Um, they started really low and they went up very, very slowly. That was a suggestion by Whitley. Just, just take it up very slow. It doesn't need to take a long time. I mean, it doesn't need to be fast. Um, and then four hours later on the dot, the Foley bulb fell out. And from my research, I thought, okay, well, that means I'm four centimeters because that's where the Foley bulb falls out. So like, we're, we're good. We're making some good movement here. So I'm like up, I'm laboring, I'm swaying, Terrell and I are dancing, we're listening to music, we're like working through it all. And then Whitley comes back, I think it's like four or five in the morning at this point, and I am like in a lot of pain, a lot of pain, and Whitley's like helping me. And I think Whitley, this is when we like went into the bathroom, it's probably like an hour or so later, we're in the bathroom, I'm laboring on the toilet, because I read everything about laboring on the toilet, and I'm like sitting there, and. I start to feel delirious. So I'm like, yes, I'm in transition. I already know, cause I know what transition is supposed to look and feel like. I feel crazy, so this must be where we are. So again, part of my birth plan was also like, the cervical checks that I do have, I don't want many, but if I do have them, I don't wanna know where I'm at, okay? So Dr. Branch comes in, it's the next morning. And she's like, okay, we're ready. We're going to have a baby today. I'm going to deliver your baby. And she's like, can I check you? And I said, yeah, because I'm feeling like I must be at an eight, right? This is where, this is where I have to be. So she checks me and she's like, oh, you've made great progress. Everything is great. And I go, okay, cool. Tell me, where am I? And Terrell and Whitley look at each other and they look at me and they're like, you said you didn't want to know this. Are you sure? And I was like, yeah, she says I'm doing great. Why she tell me that I was at five centimeters, four or five centimeters, four and a half centimeters? And I lost it. She sure did. Lost it. I lost it. I was like, what? Your definition of great and my definition of great is not the same because I had the Foley bowl fall out like six hours ago. How am I at four or five centimeters? And y'all, it was over after that for me. I had like gotten out of my head. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And I was just like telling Whitley and telling Terrell like, yo, I'm not gonna make it. I think at one point I was like, yo, y'all can just cut me because I can't do it anymore. Whitley's like, okay, we're not doing that. So that's fine. Like we're gonna, we're gonna get there. But it was, it was the worst decision I've ever made asking for that. And I knew I was going to play myself because I said that that's not what I wanted. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So when I tell you I gave the doctor the Kevin Hart stare, I was just like, <laughs> you, you got to. Why would you, why would you say that out loud? Like <laughs> you could have turned to me. I was standing right there and just been like you know, we're just going to have a chat about it. It was like, oh. I said, okay. But I jumped into action. Yeah. I was like, we got to get her back onto where she is mentally. You are going to be okay. We got this. You won't hear any more cervical checks The uh, where you are moving forward. Let's start there. <laughs> and Terrell and I have got your back. Yeah, I love that. Cause, yeah, yeah, it was... It was bad. 
It was bad. And it's one of those things, like, as the doula, you know, like, I don't think you want to know. Because the doula is not, the cervical check is not a magic eight ball. And so the doula likes the cervical check number. It's like, just as a gauge sometimes. Right. But like, we're looking at other things. Yes. <laughs> how you're talking how you're walking how you're communicating with people anymore like but i will say as a doula she was showing all of the signs she was showing further i got you and you know i do home births and so i'm really good at gauging when a mom is a lot further and she was having all of the signs so but again it's the v-back so it's like a point where her cervix might not have never been before and yeah. so he is now reading it and it's like, whoa, what, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. And so when I reflect back, I'm pretty sure that is what was taking place internally in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, she we was were physically, she mentally did. <laughs> yes, right, she yes. Beyond it. Exactly. They don't always line up perfectly. Like. Mm-hmm. And it you also know. depends on like, you know, if her, you know, your amniotic sac is still intact and your body's moving, but the baby's still getting like in that squeeze kind of space. And so it's like, yeah. Right. So it's not a perfect science. And so, yeah, the, the doctor had to pause on that one. And exactly. And, and I'm yeah. sure Celia's going to go into this next transition, but also now baby's placement became a factor. Yeah. She, um, I was starting to have some really bad back labor and Whitley noticed looking at like the, the chart where the contractions are that my contractions were on top of each other. So another one was starting before the other one was even complete at that point. And she made a suggestion, like, can we just like, she's contracting. Can we turn down the Pitocin? Can we, can we stop it for a second just to give her body a rest? Cause I kept saying to her and to Terrell, like, I need to rest. I need to rest. I'm not going to make it through here if I don't rest. So I begrudgingly said I, I need an epidural because that's the only way that I'm going to rest with this back labor and with the frequency that the contractions were coming. So if you remember the theme of multiple times to try things earlier, we get back to now me having an epidural and the resident comes in to give me my epidural and they have Whitley and Terrell like stand off to the side. And so I'm facing a nurse and I've had an epidural before. So I know how long it should take, what the process should be and how it should feel, should feel when you're, when you're finished. And she was taking a long time. Like it just felt like forever and felt like she was like just moving some things around back there that wasn't necessary. And I look at Terrell and Whitley and they're both like, you know, when you can see someone ready to walk forward, but they're holding themselves back. And I was like, something is not right right now. So the woman's like, okay, it's placed. We're done. And we wait the 20 minutes or whatever. And I feel zero relief none so I'm telling the doctor somebody else got to come in here and try this because y'all can't top me off like I'm feeling nothing so the anesthesiologist comes in and he places and he places pretty quickly so we're doing it for a second time now complete over doing it over he comes in and he does it and we wait the 20 or 30 minutes and I'm still not feeling relief like if I was at an 11 I'm at like a 10 and a half Like maybe it took a little bit of the edge off, but like I've had an epidural before. And last time I was taking a nap and watching Law and Order and talking to my friends. And this is not that. 
So I asked him to come back again. And I'm like, hey, like, it's, it's not working. This is not working. And he looked at me dead in my face and said, I find that hard to believe. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And at this time, like Whitley and Terrell were like out of the room. Like I think Terrell needed, needed to take a walk and Whitley needed a snack or something. And I was alone in the room with this white man anesthesiologist telling me that he doesn't believe that I am still in pain. And so he finally left. I tell them what happened. And the next doctor comes in to check me. And I said, don't let that man back into my room again. I said, he did not listen to me. This is exactly what he said to me. He said, he finds it hard to believe that I don't have any relief from my pain and I'm in pain. And I cannot have somebody taking care of me that doesn't believe that I'm in pain, period. And so they were all very embarrassed. They were very upset. And I think the rest of the team handled it in a really great way that I still felt safe, but I did not feel safe with him as my anesthesiologist or with, with his care. Um, the epidural finally started to kind of work, but Whitley, what is, what is the name of like that spot that was on my back that just like, if it even has a name, there was just a spot in my back that I couldn't get pain medication to if they injected it right there. And I think it was Maxwell's head that was just really pressing up against this one side. And that part of the pain just never went away. So I don't feel my legs. I don't feel anything else, but just this one spot. It's just constantly in like the most excruciating pain. And I kept saying to, to Whitley and Terrell, can somebody get my spot? Can somebody get my spot? Like I need somebody to press on it or give me something because I wasn't getting any, any relief there. And Whitley's like, okay, we need to just keep moving. We need to keep changing positions. So she's got me in Superman. I've got a peanut ball. I'm like all over the place, all over the bed um, as much as possible. And I'm talking to the baby and I'm saying, okay, you got to turn around. You got to turn around, turn around, baby. Then all of a sudden out of nowhere, we're on Whitley's phone. She's playing turn around and everybody in the entire room just starts falling out laughing. And everyone needed that comic relief because I was not going to make it at this point. Um, Dr. Branch comes in, she's checking me again. And she, she's like, okay, do you want to know? And I was like, no, I don't want to know. And she was like, it's great. It's great. And I was like, no, we've already determined that your great and my great are not the same. I don't want to know. And Whitley, I can't remember if she told you and Terrell or somehow we got to saying the number out loud and I was at nine centimeters finally. And I'll never forget Dr. Branch walking out of the room and I hear her say, she's at nine centimeters, like very excited on her way out. And I could tell that just like everybody on duty right now is like in on this birth and really excited and ready to get me like to the finish line. And Dr. Branch was like off at five o'clock. So we had a very short amount of time for this wonderful black woman doctor to deliver my baby. Otherwise it was going to be somebody else. And so... We got, uh, we waited a little bit longer. Dr. Branch was like, can I turn the Pitocin back on? Can I break your water? And Whitley and I talked and I said, Whitley, I think we're good with breaking the water because we talked about it has to be after seven centimeters before we even talk about breaking water. She said, yep. And so we did that. 
Um, we turn the Pitocin back on because my epidural is kind of kicking in at this point. So I'm feeling a little bit of, rel- of relief. And I got to like nine and a half, almost 10 centimeters. And she was like, okay, let's push. Let's try to push. And 15 minutes, I was very efficient and got that baby out at five o'clock on the dot. And when she came out, she had a nuchal cord. So I hear her say, okay, we have a nuchal cord and took it out. And, oh, when she broke my water, though, there was meconium in the water. So I panicked for a second because I was like, oh, gosh, now we're about to do this again. But Maxwell's heart rate hadn't dipped at all the entire time that we were going through all of this. And then she shows me that there's a true knot in the umbilical cord. And Dr. Brand says, okay, I don't, I almost never see these, number one. And when I do see them, the baby is not always alive when this happens. And so this was my miracle baby who just is born and she's coming out and she's screaming and she's wailing and she's put onto my chest. Whitley's cutting my, my bra because I have the wrong bra on. I can't even get access to my chest to get the baby up there. And I look over at Whitley and I said to her, because I shared with Whitley that um, my mom passed away when Axel was 14 weeks. And I looked at her and I said, Whitley, I didn't tell you this, but my mom passed away in this hospital, like a few floors up in the same hospital. And I needed something good to come out of this hospital. And so to be able to achieve my VBAC in the same place that I lost my mom, was the redemption that we talk about because I needed I needed something. The hospital is like right down the street from my house, guys. So I drive past the hospital every day, everywhere I go, right? I can't go to the store without passing the hospital. And so to be able to have this miracle baby be born with a V-back, with all of this stuff that I had to go through to get her here was enough for me to be like, wow, this was the experience that I needed to feel whole and to not have such a negative connotation to this hospital that is right there that I can see from my, (laughs) from my backyard of my home. So it was a miracle that I got pregnant in the first place with, with no help and that I made it through some real challenging early times. And all of this for her to have a true knot and her heart rate not to dip not one time during the time that I'm laboring and all of this was 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 so much and so I'm um I'm so thankful and Whitley goes, you have to get your V-back photo with my arm up and I was just like we did it. We did it. And I say we because It was not just me. Maxwell helped me. Whitley helped me. Terrell was there helping me. My dad was here taking care of my son. Like it was such a collective group effort that without all of us, we don't, we don't get here. We don't get here. Yeah. And there was a defining point when she said that she was uh, efficient with her pushing where it was like a hesitation. And I just was like, Celia, do this for Celia three years ago that ended up with that unhappy birth. And she looked at me and she was like, copy, boom, push that baby right on out. When I tell you, 
that was it. She was like, I did it. I did it. And I'm like, you did it. You absolutely did that. And then also going back to the, with the epidural, there was a point where I had a feeling where when she, it wasn't really taking completely for her. Baby was, head was arched backwards. So the back of the baby's head was touching her tailbone, which will cause a lot more pressure, as we know, with positioning when babies are coming down. So there was that constant pressure where the epidural will take with the pain, but not necessarily the pressure. And so I'm a big fan of the total eclipse of the heart. And so I was like, this song will be perfect in this moment to really get this baby to turn around. And everybody was just, it just changed the, the mood, right? The feeling in the room. I know on this podcast, you guys talk about what's the energy in the room. And that was the energy that really helped shift to get things to progress the way that we needed to. I'm loving all of this. I'm loving the staff at the hospital. Um, that's such a major part in people's experiences. Um, I love that the physicians were confident in their skills and not driven by their egos, like making decisions based on their lack of education and training, but confident and what they had done, had been taught to do. And that's, it's a, you can tell that that's a major, I don't know if it's a major shift for that hospital that someone has came in and did the work and really, you know, beat it over the head or if that's been their continuous story. Um, either way, the culture of that hospital is what, um, at least in labor and delivery, is what really helps too. Like that's part of the team as well. Um, I love that. There's just so many things. I was over here tearing up at the the end. <laughs> um, because like you said, just being able to leave that space that has been so pivotal um, for your journey, um, to be able to leave it not only with like you making decisions for this experience, um, you walking away whole from it, um, being able to take pieces of your mom's experience from that. Um, it, it, it literally is like, I love that you, you all said a redemptive birth. Like it just, it sits in that, that is what it is. Um, and I just, there's so many things, preparation, um, that you all did that is just going to, I'm, I'm excited for someone else to take and have and, and utilize right um that they can that you can you can you can be the leading voice in your experience and and even like that experience with that horrible anesthesiologist to be able to say you have no space in here be gone don't come back i'm making that known and that people are able, that people can do that, that that can be a part of, like, if you feel like someone is invading what you have created, this safe sanctuary for yourself, they can go. Get rid of them. Um, and never come back. And never come back. And, <laughs> and I made a point to tell every single person I talked to about my experience. So I leave that room, I go to the next place and they're checking on me. They're like, how are things? Oh, things are great, except for when this doctor by name did this. So let's make sure that somebody knows that he did this and this is unacceptable. And so I really felt like 
everyone else that was there on the team was like, we were all like rowing in the same boat and working together. And anybody else I talked to in on the postpartum wing was like, okay, cool. I'm gonna let my supervisor know. I'm gonna let his supervisor know. I'm gonna let multiple people know that your experience was not what it should be. And they, they were not blowing smoke because the next day someone came in and said, I heard that you had a bad experience. Let's talk about that. And that was important for me because I, you know, too often it's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll talk to somebody, but they don't actually do that. Mm-hmm. And so I really felt like I was being heard in that that was unacceptable and he should not be in spaces like that if, if he's going to talk to his patients that way. Right, right. Um, and being vocal about your experience. Like, I, I think there's this, when we're setting... It's setting up the rest of the journey when we're able to be vocal about our needs, right? So you leave labor and delivery, you go into the postpartum. Y'all, postpartum in a hospital. <laughs> there are a lot of people, you're not, you're not resting. I'm just being honest about the, the lack mm-hmm. of rest that is actually occurring. There are a lot of checks that need to be done. There are a lot of people that are going to enter your space. So you want to be clear about who's showing up in your space and what you need from them and what you are actually feeling and what's occurring so that you are setting yourself up for like when you do go home, that some boxes were checked, right? Um, So just being able to take that all with you because the care doesn't stop even though it's a different floor. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, let's, and then let's jump into postpartum. So we say postpartum is forever. What was initial postpartum like? And then talk a little bit about where you are now. Yeah, um, it was, it was great. I, there is a difference between a surgical birth and a vaginal birth. And I felt it immediately. Um, The first person who came to visit us the next morning was Dr. Branch when she got to work and she came up and she came to our room and she saw the baby and she saw me and I, was like, I need to give you a hug. I need to take a photo with you because I need to keep this whole memory just etched into my brain. Um, We left the hospital at 25 hours. So the second that they let us walk out, they were like, you have to stay for 24 hours. I said, cool. So the second that I'm done, we're out. So, you know, Maxwell got all her screenings and everything that she needed to do. And um, there's something about being a second time parent, too, because I wasn't panicked by her crying. I wasn't panicked by, like, trying to figure out the latch. And, like, everything just felt a little bit more um, like I was riding a bike, you know, and just more normal than than it felt that first time. So we left immediately. Um, I wanted to get home to my to my son and have him meet his sister. And that was great. Um, my recovery was, was great. I was like up and walking in the neighborhood. Now I'm pushing a stroller instead of being very pregnant, um, you know, within like five or six days and our whole family is just like walking through the neighborhood and it was, it was really good. Um, Whitley came maybe like a day or two after I was back and brought me a meal and brought me some tea and, you know, was making sure that I was sitting down because I was doing too much most of the time. Um, so she made sure that I was I was resting and was feeling good. Um, I had my placenta encapsulated, so I had that dropped off a couple of days afterwards too. At 
about nine days postpartum, I was still checking my blood pressure. My blood pressure spiked and it was pretty high. It was like close to 160 over 110. And um, I remember Whitley saying to me when I had a high blood pressure reading in my pregnancy, like if it's high, like go to the emergency room, don't play around with that. Like you need to go and get that taken care of. So I called the doctor and they put me on the phone with a nurse. And the nurse said, we can see you at 4 p.m. It's like 1030 in the morning. And I was like, oh, no, nah, you're not seeing me at 4. I'm going to go to the emergency room. If you're not going to see me right now, I'm going to the emergency room. And she was like, well, what's your, your, your blood pressure? I'm telling her what it is. I'm telling her I checked it. And she's like, okay, we can get you in in 20 minutes. Yeah, I thought so. So I went and magically there was an appointment for me 20 minutes later. And they, they put me on a blood pressure medication and... Um, I was on that up until six weeks and then my blood pressure was fine. So I didn't have any other symptoms. I wasn't seeing any spots or headaches or anything like that, but I wasn't playing. I would just go to the, y'all not going to see me fine. Somebody going to see me. I'm not waiting for (laughs) y'all so I can drop dead in my house. We're not doing that. Not at all. So um, it worked out and it was, it was good. Um, Whitley has built a really phenomenal community of just people. Like I found my placenta encapsulator through Whitley. Like everything is, it's just a one-stop shop when you work with her. So she's got um, this program that she does with um, a couple of other really wonderful women called Melanated Mama Mondays. And I was going to, it's like yoga and food and all of these wonderful things, a community circle. So I was doing that when I was pregnant. So like I got out to like my first one afterwards and I'm out there doing yoga like six weeks, less than six weeks postpartum and I'm there and that was great. I had a, um, Willie set up like a postpartum Zoom. So I was like able to meet other moms through that as well. Willie got me out for a walk in the park. I think Willie, what was it like two or three weeks after Max yep. was born? It was funny because there were supposed to be other moms there and no other moms showed up. And Whitley's like, do you want to just walk with me? I'm like, of course, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so we did that. And it was it was really, really good. Like the blip of the of the high blood pressure was scary, but everything else, you know, um, in those first few weeks was great. I took only 14 weeks with Axel. And then, um, so this time I took a full five months. I'm not even back at work yet. I'm back at work on Monday. And, um, Terrell was home for like three months. So we all just like hung out, you know, and got everybody just like, full of love and just spending time with each other in a way that we hadn't done since the beginning of the pandemic. And we were all stuck in our house. So it was really nice to be able to have like no visitors, just have us just in our own little, you know, bubble for a while. Terrell went back to work. And then that got hard because I, it was just me and a baby and Whitley knows I'm um, very passionate about like my career and work. And so it was really hard not to have another adult in the house to talk to all day. Um, but Maxwell started daycare three weeks ago. So the last three weeks I've been home and I, you know, she gets dropped off and I, I pumped during the day and I watch my TV shows and I just relax before like going right back into work, which was too hard with Axel. So um, I learned this time around to like, take my time. Don't rush back into anything because the job will be there and everything else will be there, but also carve time out for just me because 
I needed, I needed that. I needed to shop for my new body and have clothes for going back into the office. And I needed to just take a nap in a way that I couldn't take a nap (laughs) when she was here and all of those things. So um, it's been good. I'm excited to go back to work on Monday, but um, it's been a really, really great um, time being, being home. Two kids is hard as hell though. Like it's really hard and people are always like, how is it with two? And I'm like, it's hard. It's very hard. And I was like that when I was pregnant, when people were like, how are you feeling? How are things? Everything is bad. Everything is bad. I'm throwing up all the time. I don't feel good. Everything is bad all the time. So you're not going to get sugar-coated anything from me. And that's how it is in postpartum as well. Is like, And I'm going to give you all a sports reference because we are a sports family. Like We went from playing zone to man-to-man. And it's very challenging because somebody always has a baby. Like somebody always has a kid. It used to be like, okay, Terrell can have Axel and then I can like do anything. No, somebody always has a child. So, you know, we're, we're working on it. And so it's a lot, but I'm so happy and I would not have it any other way. The like doula part of me is like, I'm so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm like, I love Whitley, right? Right, I do. I'm like, Whitley, how can we? (laughs) Y'all need Mm -hmm. to find Whitley. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's the follow through. But this is the woman who gave me three other women. Can you imagine (laughs) if I went with somebody else? And that's how I knew, though, right? That, like, because she was like, yo, I don't think I can serve you in the way that you need. So here is like a list of other people who can. I was like, no, that actually means that you can serve me in the way that I need because you will find the resource that I need if you don't have it. And so, yes, anybody in the entire state of Connecticut, I'm, I'm going to put <laughs> Whitley out. Whitley, will, Whitley needs to be your doula. So you need to figure that out and, and call her. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners, whether it be resources, advice from your um, own story? Yeah, and I think I said it, right? The theme of this for me is just like, learn as much as you can. Um, Dig through your records, like get the internet is your friend, like find as much information as you can because with Maxwell's birth, I felt like I had time to make decisions because I already had a base knowledge of what they were asking me to do. And without that, it would have felt like Axel's birth in that me feeling like I was being told what to do because I didn't know what the alternative would be. And I think the key to that is hire a doula and more specifically, hire a doula that you have talked to, that you're compatible with, that works for you, because it's a very intimate relationship and you need to make sure that it's it's going to work. That relationship is going to work and figure it out. Like, like put it on your registry. I feel like not enough people put it on your registry, on their registry. Like find, like if anybody's asking you if you need support, yeah, I need support to pay for this doula because it's the most important thing that was the difference maker for me in being able to achieve the birth that I wanted with Maxwell. And 
I think that people don't realize how vital the service is unless they've had it or unless they've been in proximity to someone who has had it and they can see it for themselves. Because I've told friends, if you don't do anything, hire a doula. And they didn't hire a doula and they played themselves. And that's unfortunate. And I really want everybody to understand that you may think you don't need it or you may think that you don't have to research going into this, but it makes everything so much better. You feel so much more empowered um, as you approach this journey that that is going to take a lot out of you and you need the support. You absolutely need the support. So I can't say that enough, but that's it. Set yourself up to win the game. Come on. Hello. Come on. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Willie, where can they find you? Give everybody all of the things. We putting it in all the the show notes. We all of it, (laughs) Willie. Details now. You can find me. I am Nubian Doula. And so it's a playoff of Nubian if you haven't caught on. So you're going to see the spelling, but it's also N U. B-E-I-N-G underscore doula, D-O-U-L-A on Instagram and just Nubian Doula Services on Facebook. You can also find me via my website as well. We going to make sure they find you. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Oh, thank you both. This, this, this was, this was good. No, thank you. Thank you again for creating the space for people to share and learn. Because um, you, you guys also were a part of my birth team, whether you knew it or you didn't. So um, creating this space for people to share and other listeners to learn has been um, vital for me. And I know I'm not the only person out here who's benefiting from this. So thank you. Thank you to you guys. Yes. We receive. we receive it. Yes. Thanks for listening to Birth Stories in Color. To hear this show and other episodes, head to birthstoriesincolor.com. 